So we're back in Galatia. I just want to give a bit of a recap because we've had a, we had a couple of weeks out of the, the Galatians book. And in this book, we have learned so far that this is a fist fight that Paul, the, the great apostle um, of God, to take the, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ and um, salvation by faith alone, he is fighting for the truths that Christ has imparted to him in Galatia. Um, and he is, he is not holding any punches. This is a proper heavyweight battle, if you click on. And here, I reckon we're in about round four. If you imagine a boxing match, we are in bout four of this boxing match. There's already been some big blows. There's been the, there's been the talking up introduction, the hype up introduction. And then there's been got in and Paul has already leveled some massive blows at his opposition. And here we're looking at his, uh, one of his finest moments in the fight, one of his, um, shiftiest shuffles to get round and, and lay one in there, which is that Christ is the centerpiece of history. What is he fighting against? If you click on Neil. Well, he's fighting against this. The core issue is this, that the gospel has taken root wonderfully in the lives of the churches and the regions of Galatia. Brilliantly, it's starting to fly them. It's set the the captives free time and time again. They are knowing the joy of the life and the spirit and the newness of that which Christ brings to them. But, and I know Debbie hates that image, so I'm going to just let it flow by. No animals were hurt in the making of that slide, just so you know. Uh, it's purely fictitious. I love animals, mostly. But what had happened was well, there were some Judaizing Christians who, like Chris taught us right at the outset, said, no, no, guys, it's Jesus plus. You, you get all the benefits of Jesus, but then what you've got to do to it is you've got to take on a Jewish identity. You've got to take on some of the foundational truths of Judaism that you have to be circumcised to come into the family of Abraham. I, for one, am very glad that that isn't a part of the gospel message. And you have to then take on all of the rules of the law on top of yourself. So then you're really a part of the holy family of God. When you've added to your initial salvation these other two fundamental things, then you're really a part of God. And this image, the reason I made it so graphic, and the reason that Paul is so venomously fighting this is because this will crush the fledgling, fledgling church. This is not a minor issue, it's a major issue. No, sorry, I thought there was a question coming. I was. No. <laughs> um, it will crush the fledgling church and place a heavy burden on them that was never the intention of Jesus. So Paul is standing up for it, and so far we've seen him fight in a number of ways. If you flick on. Oh no, we don't. First. First, we've learned about the man Paul as well. I think that's one of the, the great teachings. We, we find out about his burning heart and love for this gospel, that everything about Paul, if you want to know who wrote most of the New Testament, it was this man with an on-fire heart for Jesus and actually who had been absolutely transformed. Do you remember General Butt-Naked? Do you know, just by this incredible, powerful moment. That'll make sense if you were here. Sorry if you weren't. Like, um, I'm not going to go into explaining it again. <laughs> I haven't got enough time in my two hours, have I, Jack? But we learn about this man, Paul. He's got this incredible, fiery heart for, for Jesus. It's captivated everything, and, and he is burning with love to reach people with this message. That's what we learn about this man. And he defends this gospel now in a, a few different ways. Let's just click through them quickly. We've learned that he's defending it because there is no other gospel. Nothing else is good news like this good news. 
He's defending it because this is God's gospel. You want to know how God works in humanity and how God has established himself in his humanity? It is by this gospel. Don't change it because that's not God's work. This is God's work. The gospel. Round two. This is where his grace is poured out for everyone. This is the point at which you find that rich goodness of grace for humanity. Don't mess with it. This is where grace is found. Round three. Listen. It really is by faith alone. He defends it because of its simplicity. By faith, by belief, by hearing the message of Jesus and and believing it for what it is, taking it at face value. This is where we don't live by a curse of the law. We live by the freedom that Christ affords us. He's defended it in this way. He's get off my gospel, he's saying. And now we enter round four. And round four takes place in Galatians 3, 15 to 29. If you've got your Bibles with you, that'd be great. If not, it'll come up on the um, screen. But do do go to it in the Bibles, because I'm going to come back to it later, and we're just going to break it down, and I don't put the words back up on the screen. I'll give you a second. And he says this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Click on. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Whoa. Sorry, I've just... uh Got to sort this out. There we go. So what's going on in this dense, rich passage of theology? Paul likes to write in a dense way, which is always a bit of a challenge. 
Well, this passage is core to Paul's fight against the Galatians. In many ways here, what he's doing is he's, he's like a lion that's attacked its prey and it's going for the jugular now. It's really trying to, trying to take the life out of his opponent's arguments. This is Muhammad Adli, like with that knockout blow for his opponents. How does he do this? Well, in this passage, he digs up the foundations of his opponent's arguments on which all of their assertions are based. And then he shows how their foundational views should have been transformed in light of the cornerstone of everything, Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is asking his opponents and his later readers to review their fundamental world story to see if it is complete in light of Christ. What do I mean by world story? Well, everyone has one of these world stories. And it's the big story that we tell ourselves about the way the world is. How it came to be and who we are in it. Everyone has faith in one that's built on experience, on teaching, on the culture that we grew up in. And a world story is the thing that frames everything else. It's like the foundation of a building. Everything else we are is laid on top of this. What we think is right and wrong, true and false, and what good a good life looks like stems from this big story that we tell ourselves about the way the world is. That's a world story. And there are loads of these in the world. But if you click on, I guess our UK story, the primary story in the UK that's proliferated by the media and everything else is probably this. It probably revolves around chance and probability. It probably says that there is no creator, no divine input in creation, no spiritual metaphysical element beyond the matter around us. This all just happened from nothing by a phenomenal mind-boggling chance. That the earth came to be able to support life by chance. Then by more phenomenal mind-boggling chance, out of a primordial soup, life started. Then by a, a more phenomenal and mind-confounding process of evolution, we came to be a species similar yet fundamentally distinct to all others, defined by our higher cortical functions and our capacity to hold considerations about our existence and God. And by some unbelievable mathematical unlikelihood, this universe, solar system and planet is balanced absolutely perfectly to sustain life. And I and you are simply a uniquely lucky ball picked out in this lottery. Look. Oh, come back, come back, come back. That was me as a lottery ball. I just wanted to... In the cosmic lottery. My son was like, Dad, what are you doing with that? Well, that's what I'm doing with that, just in case you didn't get it. The Jewish world story was 
that the Judaizers, and the primary thing that Paul is attacking here, was actually very different to our world story. It looked very different. It, they didn't see the world as being created by probability and chance. They saw it as being the result of a divine creator. And following this, there were two absolutely incredible moments in history, really key points, that defined their understanding of the world and their place within it. The first of these was Abraham and God's covenant with him. Not this Abraham, this is Abraham Lincoln. Just, I just like the photo. And this moment in history is where God calls a childless nomad, Abraham, takes his family to a foreign land, guides him through life, and promises him great blessing. And when Abraham asks God about how his blessing will come about due to his childlessness, God makes a defining promise to him and his family. And this was one of the fundamental points in Israel's history, in the Judaizers' understanding of the world. And we read about this in Genesis 15, 1-6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza in Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, Abram believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. Later again, in Genesis 16, we read this, 1 to 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, it's even older than Jack, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and for your offspring after you. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you should keep my covenant, you and your offspring, Throughout the generations, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me, you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money shall surely be circumcised so that my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Let's take a few notes of this, what was happening here. Abraham was simply a man chosen by the grace of God to be his chosen family. And there is a promise of offspring, or seed, the word is here. 
that he would have an heir who would lead to his family being as numerous as the stars. And that God would be a God to his family always and always for them. And this family would be a fruitful blessing to all the nations. This promise was to the flesh and of lineage. Circumcision was the way that those in his family confirmed their agreement with this promise. And circumcision was the way that others entered into this family as a way of saying, I am part of an extended blessing. Furthermore, you've got to take note of the way it was given. It was simple and direct to Abraham from God. There was no mediator. This was simply something that God the Father had done with his family directly. And it was simply Abraham's faith, simple trust, that what God had spoken was true, that caused God to see this man as righteous and right standing before him. For the Jewish people, this encounter and promise had become the first major foundation of their world family story. That by their lineage and their obedience and circumcision, they are part of the chosen family of God. Simply because of their race, they're chosen to be a blessing and to be God's people. That's the first foundation of their world understanding. So God created the world and we are chosen by our lineage. But secondly, although this moment was key in the Jewish story, it had been superseded by a second key moment, which is the incredible giving of the law on Mount Sinai through Moses. Just as Israel was being formed as a nation, and we read about this in Exodus 19, 16 to 20, on the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Imagine that. The smoke bellowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended on top of Mount Sinai and called Moses up to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up where he was given in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. There's another time when this happened again and the Lord gives more information to Moses, which is between Exodus 24, 15 and 31, 18. Then Moses went up on the mountain And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights where we read the Lord gave him over the next six chapters um, intricate instructions on a number of really key foundational issues for how they were to live as a nation. And then, in Exodus 31, 18, he comes down with the two big tablets of stone scribed with the foundational laws of the Lord on it. And these two incredible accounts were the point at which God set out for the Jewish nation 
in absolutely astounding fashion his law by which he wanted his set-apart nation to live whilst amongst all the other people of the world. It was where he clearly outlined, this is what morality looks like. This is what right and wrong looks like. And this is what holiness looks like and a holy set-apart people look like. It's where he said, these are my standards for humanity. I want you to model in your society for every other society to see. Be totally holy before me. Care sacrificially for one another. Never let yourself get tainted in any way by the belief systems of the world around you. You are to be set apart. This moment in history had probably become the most defining moment for the Jewish nation. That we are set apart primarily and foremostly by our obedience to the law which God gave on Mount Sinai. This is how they remained pleasing to God and had a superior position in his heart to the nations around them. Note this, though, about it. That in contrast to the first defining moment of Abraham, a grace-given promise received by faith, the ways that the Jews had come to view this was was a, a righteousness, a right standing with God. That's what that means, by works and actions. Do you remember um, Butters' brilliant example? If you weren't here, you won't. But um, They had made the law like a ladder up to heaven. By, that rung by rung you climbed up into the favor of God. And the more you stuck to this law, the more favored you were to God, and the more you could look down on those people who weren't as high as you up the ladder. It's a Pharisaic attitude. And where these two incredible moments had led them was to an understanding of who they were in the world, the Jewish people and the Judaizers who were affronting the gospel in this book. That their lineage being a part of Abraham's family and offspring, meant that they were chosen. And secondly, more important, by their culture, by their adherence to the law, by the foundations set on Mount Sinai, they were set apart to be right with God. And they believed that they were the set-apart people to bear fruit in the nations for God, as that last image shows. And it was the strength and the power And belief in this one world story, this version and account of the world, that was the foundation underpinning and underpinning of the Judaizers' arguments, which said that people needed to come into the Jewish family identity through circumcision, like I've already said, and and the law. And the passage we read this morning is all about Paul attacking these very foundations and going back to these two key moments in the Jewish world story and showing how they actually look in light of the coming of Jesus. So how does he do this? If you click onto the next slide, it won't look different at the moment. Well, firstly, if you go to your Bibles, he looks at the story of Abraham again. And he says this between verses 15 and 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean 
The law, which came 430 years afterwards, did not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. What's he doing here? Well, in verse 16, first he's looking at the Abrahamic covenant a bit more. Here he focuses in, he draws our eye to the word seed or offspring. He points to the fact that this word was not a plural, but a singular. To highlight that this foundational promise on which their whole identity was built was not primarily about many people, i.e. the chosen Jewish nation becoming a blessing, but one person in the line of Abraham. His point is that God's intimate promise to Abraham made thousands of years earlier was not on a promise that Abraham's fleshly lineage would multiply, fill nations and be kings as the Jews, Jews had always determined it, but primarily a promise that in his line a singular heir would come who would cause the promise of multiplication and blessing to the nations to truly come true. He's saying that this promise from the beginning was always a promise that one day Christ would come. That the would not only be primarily a Jew that entered this promise, that you that you entered into his promise through trust and faith in Christ, just as Abraham did, not by being part of the Jewish nation. And alongside this, as well in this passage of scripture, he gets his readers to reflect on two things about the nature of a promise by God. In 15, he opens, uh, he points to the security that there is in a man-made promise, in a covenant agreement between man. And he says, look, once it's been ratified, it is ratified, it's done, it's secure. Do you know that if you go to York, you can still shoot a Scottish person, sorry about the Sheila, with, with an arrow from the walls, but not on a Sunday? Because it's founded in law, because it's been ratified by law. He's showing that there's a deep security He then compares the security of a man's law to what it is if God has secured something. And he challenges the foolish belief that anything could alter God's promise to Abraham or make it void. Not even the law that was given 430 years later could change or alter this in any way. So in verses 15 to 18, he is calling his readers to look at the promise God gave to Abraham rightly in light of Jesus saying, this was a promise that primarily shows God has always planned Christ and his blessing and that the nations would enter God's kingdom through this promise. Nothing can change or alter this promise, least of all the law, which has never in history supersede this promise. Because it was a covenant, unbreakable agreement between God and his family. Secondly, and for the bulk of this passage, he turns to the second key moment, which was the largest one in the Jewish mindset. And he says this, in light of this unbreakable covenant and the fact that the law never undermined this covenant, as Jewish culture had indicated, 
he explores, so what was the purpose of the law? What was it meant to be? And he does this with two questions. One is very simple. If not to annul the previous promise, why did it come? So he asks in verses 19 to 20, why then the law? What does it exist for if it's not for this purpose? It was added, he says, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, that God is one. This is probably the trickiest bit of the passage because it's dense and some of the argument is unfamiliar to us. But what he's basically saying is this. The law was a great tool given because people were living in a deprived and damaged way. So as we've learned already, it set the parameters of society, of things like business practices. It said, told us what a right heart and attitude to God looked like. It showed people what the standards of God looked like and helped them live within this line in a world that didn't know it. Do you remember, again, Butters' train tracks when they were used rightly? They were just a guide, the guiding lines, weren't they, to show the, the straight path of God. They weren't meant to be a ladder. They were meant to be a guiding path. That's what it was for. It was a tool. However, he goes on in this section, and he said it was only a weaker stopgap until the greater promise of Christ given to Abraham was fulfilled. And this is the bit where it gets a bit tough for us to understand, where he shows that it's a weaker nature than the Abrahamic promise. The law was always weaker. And he says this is evident in the way that it was given through mediators and angels, meaning that it came through Moses. It, was, it wasn't direct from God. It was from Moses and angels. And I think we're all right with it came through Moses. We can see that in Scripture, but it's a little bit harder to see the angels. And what he's alluding to is there are a couple of places where um, it talks about the appearance of the Lord. And what this had come to be known as in the Jewish time of the day was that, that actually angels, the Lord had given to angels, an agent, an intermediary, the, the law of the Lord. He'd then relayed it to Moses, and he had then given it to the family of God. And Paul is showing here, he's showing, look, the, the greater promise of Moses, comparing the two, was given familiarly. It was given intimately from a father to son knowledge, whereas the law was given a little bit more like Chinese whispers. It came through one, two, three. It's like the way a state law is given. It's not as powerful. It's not as good. It's not as well established. That's what he's trying to show people. But actually, it was never meant to supersede that last law, it was never even as good as the Abrahamic promise, which their nation was primarily founded upon. Paul then goes on with his second question to deepen his argument of the law by answering a second crucial question, which is verse 21 to 22, which is this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Why is he asking this? If the law was given up apart from the Abrahamic promises, it raises this question, doesn't it? Like, but it's still for transgression. Is it simply offering an alternative way to be right and okay with God? Is there genuine confusion given by God and forgiveness, uh, right standing with God, comes through two separate pathways? Is the law essentially just an alternative, contradictory gospel? that God has established at a different point in time until Christ came. The core of the question is essentially he's asking, are my opponents essentially right when they teach that following Christ and obedience to the law are both viable ways to get right with God? 
And the best option is to go Christ and then mix it with a bit of the law because then you're hedging your bets completely. His answer is this. Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed be by the law. But the scripture had imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. No, he's saying alternative right standing with God was not the law's point. Its point was to highlight the depth of depravity in humanity by showing the boundaries of sin and that which was wrong so that we could understand God's line and when we had transgressed, when we had crossed it, which ultimately helps humanity understand its need for Jesus Christ. Let me explain this a bit more. There's a philosopher from Australia called Peter Singer who writes this. I can see no difference between watching a child drowning in a pond because I don't want to wreck my shoes and not helping a starving sick child in Africa when I have more than the means to do so other than the space between me and that child. Hard hitting that, isn't it? When I first read that, I was cut to the bone because I realised that something that was inconceivable to me, absolutely inconceivable to me, which would be watching a child drown before me because I didn't want to wreck my shoes, was not that dissimilar philosophically than not intervening to save the life of a child, something that I did daily. So inconceivable and daily. And I just realised, I realised that the dearth of my inactivity, it highlighted to me, it was like a marker pen to me, like of, of that sin in my life, of not, of not seeking to act to change people's lives where I have the mean to do it, means to do it. It highlighted to me like something that I did daily was inactive, it was wrong, it was, it was this line, marker pen highlighter that just went, oh Matt, look, have a real look at your life. And my sadness is still both that I don't help enough and that there is still a weight of that dirt and muck in my heart. How much more does God's holy law, as I listen to what is showing me about goodness and righteousness, teach me of my sinfulness? The law which essentially states, keep my heart and person in perfectly untainted love before God and my motives and conduct perfectly loving, pure and caring towards other people, When I read these law, it it makes me aware that I daily and momentarily fall down at meeting a standard of good. Listen, don't ever pedestal a preacher, especially not me. And don't ever pedestal yourself, especially if you're a leader in any context. We daily flunk and suck, all of us. There's only one great Christian man. But does this realisation that I don't live up to the law leave me ashamed of myself in daily guilt towards others? Does it get me down? Well, sometimes I'm ashamed, yes. And sometimes I feel a bit guilty, yes. And sometimes I feel low as a result, yes. But these are the doorway to showing me my true daily need for the cross of Jesus Christ. And with every deeper realisation of sin and shortfall in me, 
I gain a greater realization of the depth of the righteousness God has poured into me and how much he must love me to have covered all my shame and my guilt and my sin on the cross and to have deemed me right. My weakness, highlighted by the law, illuminates my need for the cross and his majesty and his grace and love secure me and anchor me as a result daily. Does that make sense to you? It is this very real-to-me experience, role of the law, that Paul is pointing to here. The law cannot save, nor is it ever intended to be something that's saved. But it can and always should highlight, demark and ring-fence sin, shortfall and depravity in our lives, which enables us to see our need for Christ and understand the full blessing of his grace. In the next bit of this passage, Paul just goes to highlighting this role a bit more. It's probably the most helpful bit in understanding where the law fits. He says, in light of all that he has said, the law should be understood in history as a guardian. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. And in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Here he tells his readership that the right way to understand the law in history is not as the thing that overrides the Abrahamic promise, but as a guardian. Do you know, until my children are grown, I am a guardian to them. God help them. I protect them and outline right and wrong for them. And give them a foundational understanding of Jesus and his work. Give them some basic wisdom. And I say explicitly what they can and can't do currently. But this is only for a time. Though it be a very important time for the rest of their lives. It's a forerunner to the rest of their lives. Where they will have to understand what they think of Jesus on their own. What they think about right and wrong. How they set their own boundaries. They're going to be free. And my hope in my heart is that they would make good choices and live excellent lives by building on my guardianship. But everything I do now is primarily for their future. And the law in the place in history serves the same purpose, Paul is saying. To give the foundations of why Jesus was necessary. To guard and to set the boundaries for God's people. And give some principled wisdom so that when Christ came, the depth of his freed, the freedom is brought from sin's curse was fully understood and we understood how to use our freedom as a result. The law was temporary, preparatory. It was making the way for Christ to be understood in the world. So if we stop here for a second, how does this reshape the Judaizers' history then? Well, if you click on, Paul is showing his opponents that what they thought were the most defining points in history were not. They were just forerunners, preludes, pointers and shadows of what was to come. They were the framing part of history, the lead up to the centerpiece of history, the gospel and the cross of Christ. Christ. 
the Abrahamic promise was about this and the law was about this. So everything we have read so far, Paul is saying to his readers, don't go back to the prelude after Christ has come. Particularly by asking people to take on the law again, something that you got confused and gave a confused status to in the first place. Recognize that your world story is out of kilter with the real story and that everything was always about Christ. And this real world story about Christ, it undermines all of your arguments. It blows them apart. Of course Christians shouldn't revert to Jewish practices. Because rightly understood, history is about Christ. But he doesn't leave it here. He's one final big thing to show to his opponents. And he wants to finish by sell, spelling out the implications Christ, of Christ having fulfilled the promise to Abraham. In 26 to 29, he says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are a Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Finally, what Paul does is he states that because all of history was a prelude to Jesus, it should also transform his opponent's understanding of their identity and place in the world. And he points out that now, being part of the Abrahamic covenant promise and all the blessings attributed to it, does not depend on whether you are a Jew or not. And is nothing to do with our earthly heritage or to what degree we have broken God's laws. It simply depends on whether you are in Christ and have put on Christ. You know, when we believe in Christ's work of forgiveness and salvation on the cross, the Bible describes what happens like a great exchange where Christ takes on or robes himself in all of our sin, shame and wrongdoing. And in exchange by the Spirit, the Spirit of God gives us complete, the complete entirety of his nature as a totally clean, forgiven son, not bound by sin's curse, who will always and forever stand in the family of God because Christ is the seed of Abraham. By this exchange, we are redeemed from all our sin, forgiven, and now by the Holy Spirit, in our innermost place, free to live the Christ-like life and be the blessing that Abraham was promised to be to the world. And as Paul states here at the end, in this, the end of this passage, it is simply by faith like Abraham's simple belief that we shed any former identity of Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, and become that set-apart, loved nation of God. And all nations of the world, and the people in him who enter into Christ, become that fruitful people of God. Paul then here shows to his proponents that the foundational world story 
by which they are arguing followers of Christ must take on a Jewish identity is deeply flawed in light of Christ and his work. And all that they stand for has no foundation. He's saying, get off my gospel. Get off it. You're arguing from a wrong foundation, a flawed foundation. Just to finish off, how does this affect our world story? If you click on. Back to me looking surprised. Do you know the Bible is like an intricately woven tapestry with these lots of individual threads of which God's promise to Abraham and the giving of God's law are just two of these threads. These are masterfully woven together to make a huge and beautiful picture for us to see that all of history has always built up to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That, that moment in history was not just some take it or leave it point somewhere in the Middle East, but it was the key moment in time, all of time, the centrepiece and fulcrum of history. When you add this to the rich evidence that Jesus lived and died, and in particular rose from the dead, the witnesses, the historical time time frames, the centuries of testimony, the work of the Holy Spirit, there is a world story that deeply and robustly challenges a belief that this world was all chance and by chance. If you click on, excuse the copyright, Nick. Is it there? Oh, my very, oh, there we go. Okay. And instead he says that you were designed by a loving fearfully, wonderfully made God that you have sinned and that you fall short of this and that's why he brought the law into the world and that all of history then pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ that point of salvation and actually this is the way history is this is the story this is the true story and that leads you to a choice Which story do you believe? Which story do you believe? One of the ways of understanding salvation is just as a change of story. Do I believe I was by chance? Is it that story that I'm going to speak to myself? Or actually, do I look at the evidence of Christ and the intricately woven story of the Bible? And do I say, actually, there's enough there, I believe. And it's by that simple faith and trust in the voice of God through the Bible and his work of Jesus Christ that you come into the family of Abraham and that you live in the blessings of being one of the people of God. That's it. That's the gospel. This is what Paul's communicating to his believers. Don't add to it. Get off it. This is the gospel in all its glory. It's God's gospel. Thanks for listening, guys.